Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. This is the Book Riot Podcast, a weekly news and talk show about what's new, cool, and worth talking about in the world of books and reading. This is episode 159, recording on Thursday, May 26th. I'm Jeff O'Neill. I'm here with Rebecca Shinsky, and we're coming to you from bookriot.com. Uh, we're officially in summer now. I mean, the, the yep. official start of summer is what, not till June 22nd, but Memorial Day for all intents and purposes is the start of summer. You know, we didn't do this year. We didn't do our dads and, and grads and, and Mother's Day it. recommendation show. We just kind of slipped by. Yeah. It just screwed us up because usually we do that show in like the middle, early to mid-May and BEA is not until right before Memorial Day and it was, everything was wrong. Everything was wrong. We were in Chicago. We didn't know where we were. I, I also, I have to say too, the uh, recommendation uh, pressure has been released uh, since we have get booked with Jen and Amanda, that you know, there's you can get recommendations every every week over there. But we'll do one for holidays for yeah, sure. Actually, we'll like oh yeah, that. I forgot to tell you. So surprise on air, I uh, told Jan, our sales guy, that we would do two episodes of holiday recommendations. Oh well, we've I don't I don't know if it's been every year, but a couple of the years we've done a double a two parter. Yeah, we've done some long. I remember we usually do this as an after dark. Yeah. And we've had some long uh, evenings recording those shows. So we're going to at least do two rounds of holiday recommendations. Maybe we'll have to get year. Amanda and Jen on or something, too. They can we can tap them in and tap and out. I don't know if you're Maybe in the dead of summer, we'll do like, uh, there was no news this week. And so here are our favorite business yeah, books. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, we could do something like that. <laughs> we've gotten um, a couple emails about... Uh, when are we going to hear about the Busman's MBA? I've, you know, it's, it's actually been requested quite. I am going to do that at some point. I don't know when. I mean, I don't have to wait till I've I've uh, graduated from the College of Nowhere. You know, I've given myself the diploma. I, I feel like we're in perpetual student mode at this point. Jeff. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I've done I've done probably fifty or so related books at this point. So that's probably a nice, you know, uh, yeah, check in point. You're, you're all right to pick like a top ten. I could give you five. I'll give you three that. right now. <laughs> I'll give you a bonus right now. Here's the Let's three. Let's do it. Just off the top of my head, these are the three I would say that really blew my hair back and really opened my eyes. One, Getting to Yes. I can't remember the names of the authors. I'm so sorry. I don't know the author. It's a it's a couple. I mean, two authors. I don't think they're they're uh, entangled. Um, <laughs> you know, uh, that's that's one. Insourceled. Not 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 necessarily in any order, but that that's one right now. Uh, Influence by Robert Giardini. Uh, which is an unbelievable book, um, really interesting about you know wh- how people are influenced by what, and the third one I have to say, and yeah, it's uh, I'm going to cheat with the third one, both the Adam Grant books, um, uh, uh, originals, originals and Give and Take, both of those are super interesting. Um, those are three that I that I can think of off the top of my head. Now I go from there. I, then a checklist manifesto I think is really interesting for productivity. Like productivity is a different thing, I guess, a little bit. But checklist manifesto is one I come back to one over again. Really, the, the the thing that got it all started, getting getting things done by David Allen. Um, that's that's a really interesting one too. 
so th- those those are a few, but there's there's a lot of good ones, and there's a lot there's, there's a bunch of them. You know what? I just started reading. I guess we're not going to do news right now. Um, <laughs> this is where we are, so let's just go. Yeah. So uh, you know this. I didn't even know this came out um, until recently, but it's a book by a guy, the guy um, who has long been the head of Random House, that retired recently, um, and I'm looking up his name right now. Uh, his name is Robert Bernstein. Uh, has a forward by Toni Morrison. Oh, um, because he, you know, he basically right, is yeah. the one that was in charge of Random House when when she started writing. Um, also, the one that I think acquired the publishing house she was working for while she was in, still an editor. Um, some of you may know that she was an editor before she was a novelist. Um, but it's you know basically the history, all his history in the business. But also, he's been very active in human rights. So there's you know back and forth chapters between human rights and being in charge of Random House, going from like a four million dollar a year imprint in like 1956 to by the time he left an 800 million dollar a year um publishing juggernaut so uh, i'm looking forward to that one i have to say um so anyway there's that that that's that, I, I thought that for those of you who are interested in publishing um that's going to be a really interesting book i think i'm looking forward to it. i've just read the introduction of morrison rice i'm not going to sp- spoil it but it's, it's worth looking round. for it's on its own uh on its own so there's your bonus round there's your bonus round. You know, uh, speaking of Random House, yeah. we have our first sponsor. Yeah, t- is it, this is a Random House title? I didn't even know. It I is. promise it, I didn't I know. know. It I just promise. worked out so nicely. As soon as you said that, I was like, oh, like the heavens <laughs> are opening and the segue reveals itself. Uh, so this week we are sponsored by Doubleday, the publishers of Smoke, which is the new novel by Dan Violetta. Uh, he is a, an acclaimed author and this mesmerizing prose will transport you to an alternate Victorian era England that abounds with wicked deeds, curious wonders, and dangerous secrets. Um, I just read this book. I was reading it to talk about it on all the books and then they sponsored an episode of that and I was like, well, I can't pitch the book that they're paying to advertise, mm. but it's a, I really loved it. Uh, in the world that Dan Violetta has created, smoke is a physical marker of sin. So when you are doing or thinking something that you shouldn't be, your body literally emits smoke. Um, and our three main characters are two uh, young guys who meet at a boarding school. The kids are all sent away to try to learn to control their smoke because the landed gentry essentially are supposed to be pure and too good to Mm. smoke and it's all the commoners who live in London and do the daily toiling uh, who are all smoky Uh, it's these two fellas and a girl named Livia find that they are increasingly willing to embrace their smoking though Mm. Uh, and they set out to figure out really what smoke is because it turns out that some of the uh, the wealthy people of England are involved in either continuing to make people smoke or using smoke for political purposes. And it might turn out that despite what they've been told, that smoke has always been a part of human life that might actually not be true. So there's this like weird Dickensian London setting that's so great. And then this awesome political conspiracy that runs under the whole thing of like who is making smoke and who is suppressing the truth about smoke Mm. and what are they trying to gain? Um, I really, really enjoyed it. Pretty unlike anything else that I've read. Um, So again, the author's name is Dan Violetta. That's V-Y-L-E-T-A. The book is called Smoke. It is out now from Doubleday. You can click a link in our show notes or check it out wherever books are sold. Cool. Um, All right. So I'm not sure that this is the biggest news of the week. Um, I think it's the most interesting news only for what it could portend. Um, N.K. Jemison, who is an author that was at Book Riot Live, we've talked about on the show, I believe, before. She's a she's a um, 
uh, science fiction. Well, I guess more of a high fantasy, fantasy really yeah. fantasy when I, when I think about it. Um, the, her book covers make me think sci-fi just for whatever reason. But She um, had a great argument on stage with Margaret Atwood about rocks. Did she? Oh, I, yes. I missed that. I was recording a show against it, a book riot live. Um, anyway, so she she launched a Patreon, and I don't know if people may, maybe our listeners are tech savvy and sort of internet savvy enough to know what Patreon is. Um, Patreon is, I guess, one of these second wave crowdfunding solutions, right? The first wave was Kickstarter, Indiegogo, where you know it's for one project you 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 pledge. And then you get something, one that, you know, campaign is over. Patreon is different. It's ongoing. Um, it's really more of a patronage system, which, which where the name comes from. And so you, you subscribe or I guess you pledge on a recurring basis to support someone doing something. Um, there's been a lot for music and, and videos, especially. Podcasts are big on Patreon. Um, web comics. Web comics are, yes, very big on there. Um, and, one, and some writers are starting to, to go over there. Um, Cameron Hurley, I think is her name. That yes, wrote, I'm reading her book right yeah, now. Yeah, The Geek Feminist Revolution. She's also doing it right now as well. I think the, Jemison and Hurley, I think, are the two – well, they're the ones I've heard of. So, of course, I'm going to say the highest pro- profile. But Jemison, you know, she's won some awards. Like, she's she she has, you know, a big you – know, actually, not a big fan, a relatively – medium-sized fan base. And she has a day job. She lives in New York City. And she wants to write more. And she thought she would try. And her goal was to do $2,000 a month in ongoing support from her fans. And that would be enough, according to her calculations, to be able to quit her day job and scrape together enough where she could write more um, and maybe travel a little bit, maybe you know, go to some conferences, do more research, just all the things that goes into doing a, a, a rich, full writing life. Um, and so far, she's blown past it. She's at almost $4,200 a month from 742 patrons. So you do the math. You can see it's, you know, most people are a few bucks, mm-hmm. you know, um, between 4 and $6 is really what you're looking at. I guess $6 on average. Um, and I think this is, I think this for me, honestly, is more interesting than Kickstarter. I've been thinking about it a lot over the last week because you don't have to gear up and promise one project. It is someone likes your work. And the things you get are, they're not, you don't get a lot of stuff. I mean, you get, you get access to some blog posts, maybe early chapters, maybe a special thing every now and again, but it's really, you want to see more of what she's already doing, um, which I think is super, super interesting. I think, yeah, I think it serves a different purpose than Kickstarter does. Like you can, you can come from the wild blue and run a Kickstarter. And if it's for a really compelling product and you do a good job publicizing, publicizing it, you can get backed for the pe- from people who want the thing right. that have never heard of you. Um, and Patreon, I think, works on sort of the opposite principle. It's people who like the person and what that person creates. They're familiar with the maker and whatever the maker makes. And they want that person to be able to continue making that work. Um, whether it's the webcomic or, you know, in her case, writing and uh, attending to the work of writing that is beyond just sitting down at her computer and putting words into her laptop. Um, it's I think this is really interesting also. And it's, you know, we've talked so many times on the show over the last three years about how there's this disconnect between what like average readers think of writers lives or what a writer's life is like, or like if you get a book deal, you're automatically rich. Like (laughs) if they sell your book in Barnes and Noble, you are just set, you've got it made and how far from the truth that is. I think, you know, the average literary fiction advance is less than $10,000. Um, and 
then there's, you know, the highest tier of writers. But mm-hmm. most published writers today have day jobs. And only in the last few years have they really started talking about that in a meaningful way. It, it's been a like, we should talk about how this is reality instead yes. of let's support this illusion that like writers are just writers and mm-hmm. they're just you know, swanning about making art all day um, and not dealing with the stuff of life. I think it's really fascinating. And it's great for somebody who is mid list, yeah. um, which, you know, not a derogatory term. No. Someone who has a a significant enough following that they can get several hundred people to support them on an ongoing basis who just want their work to continue to exist. And you're right. It's not so much about the the perks that you would get Mm -hmm. like from a Kickstarter as it is. I like N.K. Jemisin. I can't wait to read her next book. I want her to have time to work on it. So here's five bucks. A month, um, perfect for those writers that like their book deals are probably never going to sustain them. No, at least in the publishing environment that we have now that and that the one that we've had for quite a while. It's kind of I've seen other writers. I think um, Saladin Ahmed uh-huh. has a Patreon and he talks about he talks about it kind of as a tip jar. Like if you find value in the work yeah. that I do um, on my blog, if you find value in the information that I provide in my tweets, you can support my Patreon because this is work that I'm it's creative work that I'm doing. There's labor involved. If you you know want to support it, here's a place mm-hmm. that you can support it. Um, I, I think this is really, really interesting. Yeah. And Jemison, I mean, um, I hadn't I knew that uh, Ahmed had one. His a little different because I think he has the one the the crescent I can't remember the, the name of the crescent throne or something. I so he has but Jemison she has I think six novels done mm-hmm. like so a real track record and so one thing oh, that's no, happened, yeah a, a real community of fans a real community of fans and you're 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 getting credit in Patreon for what you have done, um, and you know that as a as a predictor of what you will produce in the future. Right. Um, whereas Kickstarter is what this thing is going to be, especially difficult. For people with novels, I think, because you kickstart to do a novel and when are you going to get it two years later? I mean, it's very, the, the rewards are so divorced from it. You have to give a little bit more all at once. Um, again, it's not that many people. 742 people is not that much. And I, I was thinking the other day about, you know, it wouldn't, if I could give $2 a month to my, I don't know, a list of 20 writers where I wanted to support them directly. I think I would do that. Yeah. Yes. I, I think I, I think I would if if it became you know more m- more um, widely done. I mean the minimum the minimum patronage is a dollar a month, so it doesn't it, it's not that much. It's for someone you're really a fan of, um, and I don't think it makes sense for all writers. I think you know if you're um, you know if you're Stephen King or someone that moves a lot of units. Um, you know, I don't know that you want to do this necessarily. But yeah, I mean, it's pretty gauche, like if Dan Brown turns up with a Patreon Yeah, account. right. Yeah, I think they're doing okay. Um, but part of the appeal here is I think as we understand as fans of re- readers like Jemison, whoever that might be in your life, you know, someone that you love and they have a few books out. But even if you talk to other book nerds, the chances are they may not know of them or if they have maybe haven't read another book. Um buy them. It's a really nice niche for them. It's sustainable. Um, I don't know what the bleed will be like, you know, how will the, how many people will keep going this for how long? It's a big gamble on Jemison's part, even on this funding level to give up her day job. She, I just saw a tweet today. Today's her last day at her day job. She's done. She's done. Um, and you know, she says it's a hard, she, she works in New York and, uh, commutes in New York. You know, she's away from home eight to seven basically. And so you, you squeeze in writing time in other places that this amount of productivity, given those constraints is actually relatively remarkable even to this point. Um, and it's, 
I guess one thing I've been thinking about recently, uh, you know, connects to another story that I don't have on the agenda for this week, but um, I, I linked to earlier, I was going to link to later is, you know, the continued strength of audiobooks um, and podcasts and some of the other things that are going on and how, you know, self-publishing has diversified into a lot of different forms. Because um, this is sort of related to self-publishing, because if you think about it, self-publishing is really about self-funding, right? I mean, that's when it comes down to is how to get money for the work that you're doing. Self-publishing is basically saying, I can get more for what I'm doing by publishing and distributing myself. This is another way of doing that. Um, podcasts like this one are essentially audio self-publishing. That's all that it is. We don't call it that, but that's, you know, it, it, there's no gatekeeper telling us to do this or not to do this. So we're doing it on our own. The, the the technical barriers are very low at this point. Patreon makes it very easy to set up an account. Um, and it's a way for her to, you know, do more of the work she does, to be a pro without having to rely upon the this sort of twice a year royalty checks that depend upon sales. Um, I think it's super interesting. I don't know if it catch on. I, I really don't. Um, and the way I don't know if this will catch on the way that Kickstarter did, uh, but I think it's I, I think it's as as an interesting a funding thing as the beginning of Kickstarter. I, yeah. I really do think that. I think there are a lot of different ways that it could be used. Like this with Jemison makes for kind of the like perfect sexy story to talk about on mm-hmm. a news show because it has several really interesting elements. Yes. Like she is a recognized enough name that there is a ready community of fans who want to just provide her with support for continued art making. And she can give them real talk about what it currently is like in her life to work this full-time job that she needs for survival and work on the writing that she wants to make. But if she wants to be a full-time writer, here's what it's going to take. If you want me to be able to be a full-time writer, here's how you can support making that happen. And there's that big shiny hook of, and I'm going to quit my day job. Yes. Support me as a writer because you like my work, because you, you know, you've read my books. There are six of them. I'm a proven success to you. Um, You can't wait to read the next one. But this will also get me out of my day job like this just makes a really nice story it's a great package but i can see it working well for you know other writers who aren't as well known i think you do need some track record yeah with i do your fans. Too. yes your audience needs some reason to trust that if they give you these dollars you're going to either make more or make the thing you're making faster or you know be less distracted because you're not going to a day job from nine to seven every day there needs to be some piece of connection there but i could see someone who's maybe less well-known than Jemison is, but who has some base of community sort of maybe starting it as the tip jar model of like, I'm going to keep my day job right now, or I'm going to keep freelancing a lot. Um, but the, the more com- that comes in on my Patreon, the less of that other stuff I'll have to do. Yeah. And you could see it being sort of an event, like a gradual transition from mm-hmm. the tip jar to this. Now, now I'm fully supported by fans and my writing work. I can be a full-time writer. Yeah. Um, there's a big spectrum there and Kickstarter kind of just lets you do the one thing, mm-hmm. which is fine if all you want to do is make one thing and you need support for it and, and essentially pre-orders for the product. But yeah, I can think easily of 20 writers that I would give two bucks a month to yeah. Um, yeah. for like for no perks other than just this is going to make it easier mm-hmm. for you to write that next short story I'm going to love. I mean, if you think of it as an investment that for $2 a month, I might get 25% more stuff from a writer I really like. I mean, even thinking about it that way, it, sure. as a value proposition, um, it's pretty compelling. Uh, 
Um, you also wonder if, you know, I, you wonder what kinds of other financial freedom sometimes comes with artistic freedom too, right? I mean, will you be more experimental if you know you have this baseline level of support? Um, you're not so worried too much about maybe even selling. You, you have to get a bigger advance for your next book. Maybe you can write something that you want to do a little bit more or do some other kinds of work that don't necessarily pay, but they're part of your, you know, your output that your fans um, get to have as part of their lives. You know, we've thought about, you know, various, you know, various, some people are on their podcasts, you know, basically these, these, there's other models too, where basically your patronage only kicks in if an X new thing is produced. So it's, you can subscribe for, it's like $1 per video, right? So if someone's mm-hmm. a video maker, like if they do six videos in a month, you're $6. If they only do three, you only pay three. Um, Jemison's and I'm looking at Saladin Ahmed's right now. Those are just per month. So it's just sort of, uh, what would you call it? General funds, as we would say in the um, the academic development world, it sort of goes into the general development funds f- for their for their writing life. Um, but there's other ones that could be like, you know, the more it's really pegged to production, um, which is interesting too. You get direct support from your authors that way. And that, you know, the the one bemoaning thing we've heard. Uh, well, we've heard lots of bemoaning things about publishing. <laughs> I have to be more specific than that. But this is the the mid list crunch. Mm-hmm. Um, is that, you know, there was a time and some of this is couched in, in racing class privilege and maybe a lot of it is where there are certain writers that could have made a living in the seventies writing the novels they're writing now that can't do it now. Um, you know, there, there's a, there's a huge middle. I think there's a lot more people making a lot, a lot of money. Um, they're the middle class of writers from what I've heard. And I don't know, I have to say the stats about it, the middle class, the middle tier of writers seems to be the one getting squeezed. I think people uh, in the self-publishing, in genre, um, further down sort of the, the circulation ladder actually probably are getting a little bit more because they have a lot of different ways they can go. They can go self-publishing, they can go small press, they can do Kickstarter and these other things. Um, so the ability to make a little bit of money writing is way easier. The ability to make a whole ton of money is easier, but the ability to make sort of a middle income career seems to be less common in, in aggregate. And this might be one of those those places um, yeah, that I people who go. That's for sure an interesting way to try to solve the problem is to turn it out to your fans and audience and give them the opportunity to support you. Um, Jemison raises some interesting questions. She wrote a blog post this week that addresses, you know, more fully why she's doing this and, mm-hmm. you know, what some of the unknowns are. And like, yes, she's accounted for the 30 percent that will be taxes. You don't need to worry about her. Patreon there, takes but- a cut. Yeah, there are interesting things that she doesn't really know yet. Like if she writes a new short story and that's one of the benefits of being one of her patrons is that you get access to the story early or maybe you get access to stuff that she makes that no one else has seen. Uh, Will the kinds of short story, like short fiction journals that she submits to literary journals, will they consider that to be previously published work that is not eligible to be published in their journal? Will, what will, what will, oh, excuse me, what will her publishers have to say Mm -hmm. about like maybe a novel that grows out of a short story that she shared with her patrons? So there are some open questions. Um, I'm really interested in her her publisher's response to this. I'd love to, you know, know if there were conversations. Yeah, right. right. Yeah. Did she talk to her publisher? What did they say? Like, if you're publishing a bunch of mid-list writers and they 
go out on their own to run Patreon accounts, I think you're kind of like, well, I I would be kind of like, okay, well, they're less likely to walk into my office asking for a raise now because, Mm -hmm. you know, like maybe they don't need their next advance to be as high. Um, They're not going to ask for a a bigger one, at least, because they have this reliable $4,000 per month coming in from their fans. And I know that that exists now. So both sides can use it as a negotiating point. But I can also see publishing being the way that publishing is and kind of slow to accept new things or at least suspicious publishing is just kind of always suspicious Mm -hmm. of the new thing um them being concerned about an author like running out and doing this on their own and i don't i mean what are the real things that could happen that would be terrible probably very few of them um but you can see some like well what what's going to happen if she puts this out there before like Publishing is not a stranger to here's a collection of short stories that most of which have been published in journals before. Right. Um, And we've just put them together for the first time. Or here's a novel and you read a chapter of it in The New Yorker last month. Um, But whether they'll accept the work that's created and distributed to patrons to be the same as or at least equivalent to um, the work that you know, writers put out while they're in process on something, um, but through more traditional means, I think is a really interesting question. I would love to know. I just want to know if she was like, hey, publisher, here's the thing that I'm thinking about. You could, you know, give me a higher uh, advance or I'll go do this thing. Uh, or did she just decide to do it? Yeah. And I don't know. I mean, say what you will about a day job or, you know, having a job, you get paid every month. And, you mm-hmm. know, as long as you're working, you get paid. Like, are patrons going to are, are are these people going to support her for twenty five? Are they going to subscribe for twenty five years? You know, like what is the is there a uh, what's the churn rate? I guess would be the, mm-hmm. the, the 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 jargon you would use. Like how, we're in the very beginning, so we don't know how long someone will someone get tired eventually, or they don't think it's worth it, or they just run out of money, or they die, or their credit card gets declined, sure, or they move. Yeah, like, yeah, there's a million things. The Dunning that can process, as you know, can be mm-hmm. very difficult. Oh, I'm familiar with the Dunning. The process. Dunning process, when you know, basically, if someone subscribed to get something or time to get something, when it comes time to actually charge your credit cards, a whole myriad of things can go wrong. Um, you know, and then what do the fans expect? What does she does she feel? How beholden? Certainly, I'm I'm sure anyone would feel beholden to some degree um, to the people giving the direct support. Mm-hmm. You know, what is an accept? What will become a, you know normative expectation of what someone Mm -hmm. you're doing, you know, what someone you're supporting on Patreon as a writer is going to produce and give you that someone who isn't supporting them gets. Yeah. Yeah, And I think, you know, she does a nice job in this blog post and we'll put a link to her Patreon and the blog post in the show notes um, so that you can get more info. But she talks about a lot of the value that she's found in having a day job that she thinks it's really great for the most part for writers to have day jobs and to not just sit in a locked room writing all day long that you go out into the world and you have experiences and you have a rich, you know, full life out there in the universe. uh, And that helps you as a writer. But that, uh, you know, for the small business that being an author of six books becomes, it's really Mm -hmm. not sustainable to work as you were saying, eight to seven or nine to seven every day and also work 50 or 60 hours a week on your writing plus writing job related stuff. So I I think that long-term question is really interesting. Is this kind of a, near short term, like if she runs the Patreon for a couple of years, does it free her up to make, to write more and to make enough more off of her books that if Patreon totally goes away, she won't need to go back to a day job? Like I kind of how that shakes out, I think is a fascinating 
thing and the what people expect i think if i've been thinking about like would i ever have a patreon mm. <laughs> like i don't know what i would make right um but if i made a thing and i had the option to do a patreon i think my biggest concern would be what do people really think they're entitled to yeah. for it um because it's clear you know what you get if you donate a dollar a month if you donate three dollars a month she's written out what you can expect but that doesn't stop people from feeling entitled to other things um and especially mm-hmm. when you're writing like a series that people are really into. I mean, we've seen how nasty people become. Yeah, if they don't like a cliffhanger in the second book of a series or 25. Right. Is it like, well, I've given you a dollar a month for the past four years and for my $48. And I have to go buy the book because you 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 ain't going to get the book for free. Right now, I expect you to not block me on Twitter when I'm rude to you. Or now I expect you to answer my nasty email. Or my nice email. I expect you to answer email at all. Right. I'm entitled to your attention because I did this. Um, The difference between like the clearly laid out expectations and what people could turn it into, just it being the internet and people being people, um, would I think would make me hesitant. I think she's really bold for doing it. Mm -hmm. um, And it'll be interesting to follow. Yeah, I mean, the one I I think the one that makes a little bit more sense to my mind, and I'm not saying this doesn't make sense, but if I were ever to do something, is like I would like the model where every time I produce X widget, the Patreon kicks in for whatever dollar amount Mm. it is. Like, say Book Riot goes away tomorrow, and you guys, you and I, still want to do this show, we could say, you know, we could do our own Patreon, say, you know, it's going to be a dollar per episode or something. You know, I I don't know what the price would make sense. And every time we released one, you know. It would come that that makes more sense to me. I have to say then this sort of I guess it's it is related to the sort of Kickstarter thing where you donate the minimum to get the thing, and then there are levels on top of that where you get the thing plus this other junk. And I think that other stuff is a very difficult problem to solve in terms it's of a value fuzzier, proposition. Yeah. Um, so anyway, very interested to, to see that. We'll put a link in the show notes to Jemison, um, her, both the blog post she wrote about it and the uh, the Patreon itself. Um, let's do some more news. So, so speaking of people that don't need Patreons, um, <laughs> I think we knew this was going to happen, though we hadn't heard the official announcement since the fourth book in the Millennium series, um, The Girl in the Spider's Web, written by David Lagerkrantz, sold very well. Um, I think we talked about the end of last mm-hmm. year, the, the early part of this year when we did the best-selling books of the year, um, is indeed going to um, write a fifth book in the uh, – the Millennium, Millennium series starring Elizabeth Salander and Michael Bloomquist. Um, the novel will be released in the UK in 2017 uh, and the States as well. Um, Quercus. Uh, I don't think it's, it, does it, have a it title? doesn't have a title no. yet. No, okay. it's the uh, Skunk Works Millennium 5. Millennium 5. So that's it's a series now. I mean, it's oh, yeah. it, it survived the transition. And it, yeah, it extended beyond the trilogy. I was trying to think. Um, did you read it? Yeah, I did. Yeah, I oh, you did. did. I you did. Read I read it. I liked, I liked it. I liked it. Uh, um, you know, I, it didn't, it, I don't, I kind of miss some of the, the quirkier of, of, uh, of Larson's quirks. Mm. Um, that's the stuff about how detailed about the food and the Ikea stuff the and the pizza. Mac, you know, how many gigabytes were on the, the MacBook. Um, so I have to admit, I kind of missed that because it, it had its own kind of weird, obtuse charm, I have to say. I'm not unlike myself. Um, <laughs> but it was good. It was compelling. It was a good read. I think she, he he kept the spirit of Solander and Bloomquist uh, 
a lot. I mean, they felt like the, similar. They felt like they were the characters. Um, there's a bit of a cliffhanger, not not really a cliffhanger, but a lead into what you, you understand the next book will be. I was trying to think of other series that survived a switch in authorship, and I was I came up short, but I'm, yeah, I don't read a whole anything. lot of series. I mean, there have been Bond books since Fleming. Oh, um, and there was a Bourne book after. Yeah. Um, who wrote those? Ludlow. Ludlum. Right. Ludlum. Yeah, after Ludlum. Robert Ludlum, Ludlum died, Ludlum. yeah, somebody took over. Someone took. I don't know how many of those. I guess that. I guess that's probably the closest analog. Uh, it would be the Bourne series. Um, so I, we're going to get these for a while longer. So that. So those of you who are interested in that, um, I feel like the, it was originally said that there were supposed to be ten. Um, yeah, but obviously Bloom, all ten uh, were not written. I, I miss up Larson and Bloomquist because they're so strongly identified. Yeah, that he had. I thought it was nine, but anyway, a longer series. You know, a good long series. Um, so that's coming out. You can watch for that. Uh, let's see the other big news, um, and it's more in the comics world than our world. But we talk about subscription services all the time. I got into a couple, you know, thoughtful Twitter conversations mm-hmm. with people this week about this um, comicsology. Um, is launching a new digital comic subscription service. It's called Comixology Unlimited. Um, and basically, it's going to be a all-you-can-eat comic book, di- digital comic book reading service. Um, Comixology, if you don't know, was the first mover in a, in a, and is the juggernaut in digital comics, now owned by Amazon. Um, and um, they're going to have, you know, basically, basically they're going to have, it's going to be $6 a month, and you get unlimited access to whatever's on there. So there's none of this. You get one of these, and you'll pick from column A, and this, and this, and this. Um, it's whatever's on there you can read. Um, the catch, and there's always a catch, uh, no Marvel or DC to start. But well, you get Image, you get some Dark Horse. Um, you know, So you get things like you're going to get Walking Dead, and you're going to get Hellboy. Uh, mm-hmm. Buffy the Vampire Slayer, some of them, you know, but you're not going to get, you know, your 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 Avengers or your Batman or your Ms. Marvel, your Ms. Marvel, your Squirrel Girls. Um, so anyway, th- there's that. Is Boom on there? Do we know if Lumberjanes? I don't know is on if it? I, I think it is. It, um, the article I'm looking at right now doesn't say, um, but it's a it's a very good price. I'll what, say that five ninety nine a month. That's the price of like two floppy oh, comic it, it, issues. It's a heck of a deal. Um, and I think the you know the other thing we've heard again the catalog isn't released yet to my knowledge is they're going to do a lot of first runs of a series so you might not get every Hellboy ever made but you get a you know get a couple trade equivalent in digital of Hellboy to get you hooked on it right because that's mm-hmm. kind of you know kind of the model first one's free first one's free and you can try a bunch of different things out and I think it's a good model for comics um, because she. You want it's, it? I I think it's kind of like a podcast. Is it's hard to get someone to try a new comic, but if they try it and like it, they they'll be with you for a long time. Um, so offering a lot of them at a very very low price to start with makes a lot of sense for me. Um, I, what I'm wondering is who's going to sign up for this that will sign up knowing there's no Marvel in DC. Cause that's not, that's not mm. sort of a casual comics fan, right? Cause I don't know that I would sign up with this without Marvel in DC. Yeah. I, well, I don't know. I guess I am the casual yeah. comics fan and the only Marvel comic that I read is Ms. Marvel. Ms. Marvel so in, okay. in my personal, like super idiosyncratic use case, just unlimited access to some of the image stuff. And if boom is on there to those, as well would like that would keep me going for five ninety nine yeah. a month. I would get more than my money's worth mm-hmm. out of it. Um, I 
You know, I think they're really smart to use this as kind of a first taste is free or yep. first taste is five ninety nine a month mm-hmm. um, thing to put those first runs in there and then ho- probably try to shuttle you over to purchase the rest of them through Comixology. That gives me a little more hope for the business model than what was happening like with Scribd and with Oyster of here is everything um, and just binge all the way through it and then not actually making yeah. any money from the rest of it. Um, comics readers can just really be power readers. I'm interested in the politics of this mm. in the comics world um, because comics is, I think, more connect. The comics readers have traditionally been more connected to the economics of how the comics are made than book readers yes, have. Yes, right. Um, because there's this thing of, you know, you've got to, pre- if there's a new comic that's coming out, you really need to pre order it from your comic shop so that they know that there's demand for it. And publishers, comics publishers, will just cancel a number one. Oh, yeah. They'll cancel a first issue of a new thing and just call it all off if there doesn't seem to be enough demand. There's no like, I'll just wait and go to the bookstore that day and get it. Um, if you really want the thing to exist, you need to. And this is just how comics has been run. Mm-hmm. Um, so you need to pre-order that number one so that they know that you want it. And comics fans have been so connected to the creators that there is some real care about like, I want to buy my books from a comic shop. I want to buy them in print because more of the Mm -hmm. money makes it to the creator than otherwise. Comics creators are pretty vocal to their fandoms about how that works. So some of the noise that I saw on Twitter was people saying things like, you know, if a comics creator that I really love, if their books show up in Comixology Unlimited, um, but I know that they don't like the business model, we don't know what the payment is going to look like. No. We don't know what the licensing deals look like for these comics publishers. So we have no idea currently how much a publisher or a comics creator will make from being included. But people were saying, like, if I know a comics creator that I care about doesn't like this business model or isn't benefiting from it, then I won't read their comics in Comixology. I'll continue to consume those in the way that supports them. Um, And that's it's like it's just a much more explicit discussion about the money of it than happens in book publishing and and, and so much more confusing because i yeah i mean because <laughs> you buy with very rare exceptions you buy a copy of um i'm just trying to think whatever it is where what are we buying this what are we excited about that's coming you buy modern lovers by emma straub a lot of people are going to pick mm-hmm. that up yeah. next weekend you kind of know, right? She's get a percent. She gets an advance, and then royal. I mean, most people know. Oh well, sure. And her publisher's already talking about it as a bestseller. Yeah. Well, but but I mean, just in terms of like what the arrangement is. Whereas you go into comics, creators have a million different arrangements with their publishers, right? Like mm-hmm. you're working on Spider Man. You don't own the IP to Spider Man, but I don't know. For example, do what what do Brian K. Vaughn and Fiona Staples own related to Saga? They oh, could own a lot of it, right? Or Squirrel sure. or Lumberjanes or Miss mm-hmm. Marvel. I mean, Miss Marvel is a bad example because that's, you know, Avenger Marvel. stuff. Like, that's a different thing. Yeah. But some of the Marvel stuff, the creator has more of a stake in the ownership. And the, the, the topography of creative control, ownership, and remuneration is just so – it has so much more uh, undulation. That it's, uh, it is, does seem to be part of being a comics fan is keeping track of – Sort of the ethics of spending your dollars. Right, yeah. It's thinking about where your comics dollars go. Yeah, and Um, it seems an undue burden to me. I think it is an undue burden on the reader because we we sort of have the opposite conversation at Book Riot quite a bit. That it's not a reader's responsibility to make sure that an author gets paid. It's um, And there are no real ethics to – like if you're not stealing a thing, then – 
however you're buying your books or however you're reading them is fine. You know, shopping at an independent bookstore mm-hmm. is no more ethical than shopping at Amazon or at Barnes and Noble or using your local library or only borrowing things from your next door neighbor who reads a lot. Yes. Like, there's no inherent like value judgment in how you purchase your books. And we don't want there to be. It's not the reader's job, but it's really ingrained in, in the comics community that it is. Um, that if you don't support the thing right up front, you're not going to get the thing that you want. And I, and I think also that the com- the the comics community is small enough in the comics readership, especially of the, the kind that will pre-order a number one of uh, Faith, right? So the new comic... Mm-hmm. Um, that you can actually make a difference, right? You know, like a few thousand yeah. of you can like can determine the fate of a book uh, of a title. Whereas in publishing, you know, regular prose books, the book's already coming out. I mean, the book is coming. Like, you, at mm-hmm. no point could you intervene on the book's behalf to make sure that it has a life. Like, once you know the book is has a release date, it's coming out no matter what. You can't even intervene on a book's behalf to make sure it doesn't have a life. Yes, right. Like yeah. just today on the Twitter exploded about a young adult novel yes. um, that is f- very fraught for very many reasons that we are not going to get into yeah. today. But that like the deal should not have been made in the first place. And now the book is coming out and the publicity is going to just be a garbage mm-hmm. fire for it. And no matter how much noise people make about how problem- problematic and hurtful the content of this book is, the publisher is going to roll the book out. Like you. In- in very, in to. very extreme circumstances, something might get pulled or shelved. But yeah, in general, you're right. Like once the train is is uh, fired up, it, it's coming. Whereas in comics, there's many, many, many possible futures for a title, and that that rightly or wrongly, hardcore comics reader have some say over. Like the, where I've sort of landed on the the Amazon publishing thing, at least from the you know traditional book prose side, is you know if a publisher decides it's in their best interest to sell on Amazon or iBooks or wherever, I don't feel like I can say they're wrong, right? That, 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 that I'm supposed to know better than they do about what's good for their business. That seems bonkers to me to try to make that claim. Um, that doesn't mean I can't choose other things, but I, I, I just can't say to Random House, you know, it'd be better off if you didn't sell your books on Amazon. I, I assume they know their books well, better than I do in the business better than I do. Whereas in co- – and it, it seems like that should be in comics. Like if if Boom decides that being on Comixology Unlimited is is good for their business, then I think I just kind of have to say, great. I mean, then I have to buy in, I think. Yeah. Or I guess then you have to weigh the options of what do you like more? Do you like your boom comics more or do you like your principle about comicsology and Amazon being bad? Right. Um, and which one carries more weight for you? And then you decide like if it if the only way and the thing that we have kind of I'm, I'm 100 percent with you. Mm. Publishers know how to reach their customers or at least they know better than most of the rest of us how to reach their customers and a very significant portion of their sales, at least in books is coming from Amazon. So I, you know, if they're saying we're not better off (laughs) ditching Amazon, and I think many of them might like to, or would at least like to experiment with what would happen if we didn't have to rely on Amazon and cater to Amazon and be afraid of making Amazon mad, there would be some liberation there. And there's a reason they haven't liberated themselves. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's, that's such a significant portion of customers are coming from it. And those customers, like you've got, you just have to decide if the only way to get the book is Amazon, then do you want the book more or do you want to not support Amazon more? Um, And same for the example that you're talking about with Boom or Comixology Unlimited. It, it just comes down to, what, as a consumer, which thing do you care about more? And you're allowed to make that choice. Um, but it's, it doesn't make you a better or more right 
reader or customer in some way. And books, I do think, is moving away from that. But it's interesting as a casual comics fan mm-hmm. to to see really how fraught it is in comics and how tied up it is in many comics fans' kind of identities as a comics fan. Um, right. That that there are ethics. Yes. Um, how deeply some of some of those fans really do seem to believe that there are ethics to how you buy your comics and to supporting creators. And like, it would be interesting to maybe see some of these comics creators go the Patreon. I'm sure that I'm sure some of them have. Yeah, Yeah. I'm sure. I mean, the other thing about comics, I mean, as opposed to a prose book, I mean, you can write a prose book on your own. That doesn't mean you can't, you can edit professionally and market professionally and do cover design and typesetting and all that stuff professionally. Comics are so collaborative. I mean, it's very rare. You get someone who does the, the, the penciling and the inking and the writing and the illustrating and the production and, and all the things. So it's, I think it's more difficult to sort of be an independent um, creator. Yes. So you really need in the distribution, if you want to sell physical books, it's a whole different deal. Um, so I think there's, there's a part of that too, where you have to be a part of this. You don't have to, there's so much advantage to being part of even an independent comics publisher than trying to do it on your own. That really there's, there's not any web comics or some exceptions. I know this, but it does feel to me that to get your comic into, you know, to be a part of big time comics or even middle time comics, you cede a lot of the control over what's going on to, to the publisher. So I don't know, maybe there's, maybe there is an extra layer of that. The creative things that are good for the creators and what's good for the publisher aren't aligned in comics. And, you know, a fault line could be around digital comics and subscription services. I mean, even as cheap as it is, those six bucks, what's Netflix streaming? Eight bucks? Yeah, eight like, ninety nine. Yeah. I think. I just wonder if maybe this should be two ninety nine. Like, if the, mm-hmm. if, is the goal to get revenue from this, or is it to just get people acclimated to digital comics, and then once they've done the first run, you know, they've done Saga Volume 1, and they right. have the buy next volume right there for five ninety nine. Um, or maybe the price should be even lower. I don't know. I don't know. I, don't what- I think I mean five ninety nine, especially if you're thinking about like a like middle of the road comics fan who's got a pull list or a couple things they read every month. Like five ninety nine, I think seems reasonable. Um, no, I, it's reasonable. I'm just saying, like, are you know we've seen this with ebooks like 199 mm-hmm. and 299 are sort of magic prices even when I do ebook deals if something's 399 like the interest is not as much it's still there but like that dollar you wouldn't think that dollar matters but it matters it yeah, matters i guess i i wonder how 499 seems like it would be a better price i mean there's that there's a 5 bucks as a psychological well, barrier sure um i wonder how well those examples work when you're talking about 199 and 299 for one title versus five ninety nine for all of however much you want. Well, I, I um, guess the question is, what are I mean, they like trying to do? I mean, like one ninety nine is always more appealing than five ninety nine. Well, what right, are they sure. trying? We to don't do. know what they're trying to yeah. do. Yeah, I mean, if they think is is the getting them to buy volume two the core of the business, or is it the is it the entree or is it the side dish? If it's the side dish, well, okay, then you need to charge a little bit more for the mm-hmm. the, the, the subscription itself. But if it's the entree, well, then lower the pr- lower the price of entry. Yeah, um, I hope they did better math than like Scribd did, so that they understand what'll happen if the power readers. Yeah, find I them. mean, I hope. I hope. Well, I don't know. I don't know what I hope. I mean, I, I would assume Amazon and Comixology have done enough of their homework that they signed sort of a blanket rights deal with the creator. So it's not a per read fee. Um, Mm -hmm. We don't know this for sure, but I think the writing is, was on the wall, especially around audiobooks that Scribd 
had to pay per listen rather than we're going to pay uh, Simon & Schuster a flat fee to have a title for the month. And it doesn't matter how many people listen to it, we're just going to give you that flat fee. Because the thing that that seemed to kill them with audiobooks is that people really like to listen to audiobooks. and get on with it there. All right. Should we just do another? Where, where do you want to go next? Well, we got we to gotta go to our next sponsor. Should we do, go to the next sponsor? This is cool. Okay. So this is um, – the, the next sponsor is the Fiona Fitzgerald series by Warren Adler. Does that na- – uh, give yourself a minute. Does a War- the name Warren Adler sound familiar? I'm just – I'm wondering if people do. Are you, re- are you done? I'm going I'm, I'm to go. You've had your chance. Okay. Pop. Should I like make a sound? No, no, or not you. I'm just the audience. Like, if you're not ready, hit pause. Just give yourself. It's like he's like, ah, oh, Warren Adler. I've heard oh, that we name. Need before. the Jeopardy. Yeah, the yeah. Jeopardy music here. Warren Adler. He wrote. Ready for it? The novel, The War of the Roses, which turned into a giant box office hit. So that's where you may have heard the name before, um, if if you're wondering where it's from. But he's been writing to a series of. Mysteries set in Washington, D.C., the Fiona Fitzgerald mystery series, the, the main character is Fiona Fitzgerald. Um, and she is a, uh, on uh, one of the, the highest-ranking members in Washington, D.C.'s primarily male police force. She's a senator's daughter, and she's in the homicide division over there. So it's, it's a combination of, you know, classic sort of murder detective stuff, but set in sort of the, the power, political power nexus of the world. Frankly, and she has access to the highest ranks of American political aristocracy, but also she's apart from it. Um, and this, the newest book is out now. It's called Red Herring. But there's been nine. There, uh, this is the ninth book in the series. So if you know, if you yourself like mysteries, like detective stories, but also like political intrigue, um, or know someone who does, you can get started on this. The American Quartet is the first one to get you started, though I don't um, – my understanding is you don't have to read them in order. They're sort of standalones that you can read it. So um, Adler himself has worked uh, in D.C. In, in, in the kind of ways you would ex- that would give him access. Um, he served in the U.S. Army in the Pentagon as the only Washington correspondent for the Armed, for- Armed Forces Press Service. Um, he's, he's owned radio stations and TV stations – advertising and PR agencies. Um, he's, he, he's married to Sonia Adler, who's a prominent editor of Washington, uh, the Washington dossier, uh, dossier, excuse me, the premier society magazine, Washington, DC. So he knows this world that he's talking about. So you, this, this is the setting makes it a little bit different from your average detective story. Um, so that's the, the, the Fiona Fitzgerald series from Warren Adler. The most recent one is red herring. Um, the first one, is American Quartet. So the end is in the beginning and the beginning is in the end if you want to check that out. Thanks so much to them for sponsoring this show. All right. Um, where do you want to go next? We're, we're, we're kind of running up against go. time here. A little we bit. are. Again, we got chatty. We got Let's shot. talk about, you know, a couple little potpourri things. Yeah. Judy Bloom is yes. still busy. And Always busy. She's still cool. I just, you know, hope Even Judy age. Bloom has the, the dream of opening an independent bookstore in Key West. And she did and it. And she done did it. Uh, she is 78 and embarking on a new career. She and her husband opened a nonprofit bookstore in Key West where she's been working almost every day and loving it. So originally she had planned to take a gap year after she finished um, writing and promoting uh, her last novel called In the Unlikely Event, which was her first novel for adults 
uh, I think since wifey, since like the 70s. Yeah, mm-hmm. um, and so she'd been on tour for that. It just, I think it has just come out in paperback. And her plan was to like kick back and, you know, not retire, but like take a year. Uh, but she was talking with Mitchell Kaplan, who owns the indie bookstore chain Books and Books. Uh, and they have several locations. And they started talking about opening one in Key West. Uh, so they have been working together and now Judy Bloom is a bookstore owner and if you are going on vacation to Key West you can go uh, to books and books at the and studios. she's like working their hand selling yeah this is like when you know Ann Patchett opened yes. Parnassus and yes. started talking giving all those interviews about how she loved being a bookseller because you get to stand around all day making people read all of the things that you love reading uh, and in this interview with the at the Guardian Judy Bloom is talking about how it's like Christmas every day um, you know talking to people about the books that they want to read and how hungry she's finding people are for having a real bookstore uh, in Key West again uh, and just you know there's not much more to say about it. Just a great you know, thing to see a person who's been a real, like a a person can't be a landmark. What is the term that I'm looking for? An icon. For? An icon. icon. It's like a it's landmark a in human week, form. week, Jeff. I spent the first half of today thinking it was Friday yeah. and it's Thursday and anyway. This, yeah, this uh, um, Thursday before Memorial Day is oh, always the, the Friday-est Thursday uh, of the year. It is the Friday-est Thursday. I'm struggling, but Judy Bloom is not struggling and I'm stoked for her that she's got this bookstore that she's running and uh, I think this is the thing that would happen to me. I think this is also the thing that would happen to you. We'd be like, oh, we're just going to drop in one a week and see yeah. how the bookstores going. No, once you're in there, you're like, but have you read this? <laughs> <laughs> it, it, I mean, it is it is remarkable that people who who like to read a very high percentage of them a want to write a book, but maybe even a higher percentage would love to own a bookstore. Mm-hmm. Isn't that? I mean, do people who love movies? I don't think they say I'd love to run well, a movie theater. Like it's a spe- it's, it's like a specific thing. It's the, I think that the owning of the bookstore is just the vehicle for getting to talk to other people who love books all day. But it's, but yeah, but they also, the same number of people don't say, well, I'd like to be a librarian, right? Or an English teacher. You get to talk about books all day in those situations. We can probably thank the media for making running a bookstore look kind of good. Is that right? I was, I mean, is it You've Got Mail's fault, all of this? Is you've got yeah. like what are the representations? There's like a jillion. There's a jillion scenes of charming bookstores, and then all the books about bookstores that we've all read. You know, like everybody's got that worn down. Uh, copy I, I thought it was as simple as you go Cross into an independent room. bookstore, especially, and you just sort of like being there. You know, or you maybe are also yeah. It feels nice to be that in there's there. There's new you, books. You can there's Ella Fitzgerald going on. There's like you, there's a candle potpourri. If you know, it's doing nice. It right, they've got coffee for a dollar. That, hey, uh, you, you don't know, push I, my buttons. Dude, I, it's this Thursday. Don't push my buns about that. If coffee. you're selling me a book, you better give me some yeah, caffeine you better, too. You better give me some coffee. Um, it's a good button. I, I just it's it's interesting. Like do do comic? We should ask you. Write us in uh, podcastbookwrite.com. Like do comic book fans like dream of owning a comic book store? Or do, I don't know. I, it's it's interesting. I think yeah, to, it's, that it's like that particular thing. Uh, yeah, I think all a, the booksellers and former booksellers that we know have many stories about oh, sure. being at work and people saying, oh, it must just be so nice to sit around and read, and read all, all day. day. Right, they're yeah. like, that's not what we're doing here at all. But how familiar are you so with they say, they say that to librarians, too. Picking, giant, picking up giant boxes of books and doing receiving and shelving things and getting covered in dust. And, and working and, like 
18 hour days for three weeks in December (laughs) wrapping presents. But there is like, there's a little bit of a drug to recommending a book that you love to someone and then them reading it and really loving it. And it like it, this thing does not get old. At least for me, it doesn't. No, it doesn't. It doesn't get old. It doesn't get old. Like doing all the books uh, with Liberty every week, you know, when somebody tweets and says, I read this book that you guys talked about on the show um, and I really loved it. There's a little like thing of dopamine. Mm -hmm. Um, It's nice. And I, I mean, I think that people, you know, you get that from talking to your friends who love books, you get it from your book club members, Mm -hmm. you get it from like random encounters with people who are reading something that you've also read. And I feel like that's the thing that is driving a lot of that, like, oh, I'll I'll own a bookstore, and then I'll just make everyone read the books I love all day long, all the time. Yeah, there's something to that. Like, it's, I've thought about this before, of like, of of the fields of, of cultural consumption, it seems like the relationship with people who like to read the proportion of the people like to read that would also like to run a bookstore um, or work in a bookstore is extraordinary. Or they think they would. Well, that's the <laughs> yeah. same thing, right? Um, is is extraordinarily high, and even the great Bloom herself is not immune to this particular uh, disease. Um, and it seems like she's having fun. Of course, when you don't have to worry about making money, I mean, whatever. Okay, it's a different different thing. Um, all right, then we're going to go here. Uh, you know, let's do let's do hardcore book news. Um, okay. Waterstones and Kobo. Yeah, okay. Um, so also in the in the um in the ongoing I guess sorting out is the way I'm thinking about these days of where ebooks are going to live in the publishing ecosystem because it's clear now they're not going to be the top level predator, right? <laughs> they're not the lion. Right, they're, these are the ebooks are not the apex They're not predator. the apex predator. Um they're going to be a part of the ecosystem. Um and Waterstones is going to stop selling ebooks from its own. What, what Waterstones is basically the Barnes and Noble of uh, the UK, um, and instead they're going to divert customers to Kobo's reading platform for digital sales. So starting June fourteenth, they're going to buy into their their own eco. They're going to you know, move their ecosystem there. This has been Kobo's move: is to partner with um, physical bookstores. They they've long had, and I believe still have, a relationship with independent bookstores in the U.S. Where if you buy an independent, if you buy a digital book through Kobo and you've assigned basically what independent bookstore you want to be affiliated with, they get a cut. So it's physical bookstores trying to make some money off of the sales of eBooks without basically having to do the stuff about fulfilling and having a platform and cutting all the deals, all, all the horrible disaster <laughs> that goes into running an eBook mm-hmm. retailing platform. It's very confusing and complicated. But they also, I mean, that they'll, I guess the the most interesting to me is that they'll offer to sell eBooks at all. Like that they'll, they'll actually have a solution for people on their site to buy eBooks. I, I think that's the part that that's yeah, interesting for me. It is interesting. They were selling Kindle, actual Kindles up yep. through October of last year. And then they decided to stop because there were no sales really to justify continuing to do it. Um, I wonder if they, I don't know, it's unclear in this piece if they were selling Kindle eBooks as well before or just Kindles. Um, yeah. And if they were selling Kindle eBooks, the switch from Kindle to Kobo is something that like, oh, I really would love to see numbers here. Um, Cause the eBook landscape is different in the UK than it is in the yes. US and Kobo's huge in Canada. Um, I just wonder if, I wonder if they're actually going to see some sales from this. Are people going to 
find themselves like Waterstones customers on the website clicking mm-hmm. buy ebook? Or are they going to find themselves at Kobo and actually be like, oh, right, I have a Kobo account. I use that. I will buy my Kobo ebook. Or are they going to be clicking away? Or and like going Waterstones to the enough to, to buy yeah, it that way? Or are they just going to be, you know, closing the box and going over to Amazon? Mm-hmm. Um, would Waterstones have made more money from ebooks if they had been linking to the Kindle editions. Yeah, my understanding is that Amazon's stranglehold on the the ebook market is even more um, total in the UK than it is here. Uh, here, they mm. I guess uh, apparently Barnes and Noble and Google, uh, not, uh, Barnes and Noble, Google and iTunes, Apple um, have you know high single digit chunks, which brings you know Amazon's down to sixty percent. Where I think in the Am- in the UK it's like. 80, 85%. I think I've read numbers that high, Ooh, um, which makes you know, it a very entrenched player there. Kobo is really big in Canada and some other European countries too. Um, but I, Waterstones doesn't see, I guess, ebooks at this point, and you know, they had to deal with Amazon before, as enough of an existential threat just to sort of not have a solution. Like we don't even want to provide an avenue for people mm-hmm. who shop with us to get an ebook at all. Um, so that's what's going on there. And it, it's interesting, you know. I think it's very hard. I mean, ebooks themselves are a commodity. I mean, in terms of it, they're text files that you display on a screen. So I don't know how you, I don't know how you become better enough th- than Amazon or different enough to convert people. Like if you're trying to sell people ebooks of the Da Vinci Code, wh- what argument do you have that you should pick my screen, my text to screen delivery system over anyone else's. It's very hard. I wonder, you know, what presentation the Waterstones folks saw from Kobo that convinced them. It may have been on a check. That Kobo, right. Exactly. Like what, what was the argument that was so persuasive from Kobo that got Waterstones to Mm -hmm. do this? Because they're not averse to working with Amazon. They've sold Kindles. Um, And if 85% of the ebook market is Amazon, then theoretically 85% of the people trying to buy ebooks, you know, from you are going to have the intent or more intent to purchase if you land them at Amazon. So it's really curious how that occurred. Um, I would bet there were dollars, mm-hmm. um, but I wonder, you know, I wonder how much, you know, we've, we t- have talked about our own Amazon links at yeah. book riot before and the affiliate sales from, you know, if you click on an Amazon link on book riot and you buy your book there, the money that we make through affiliate sales is not insignificant no. for keeping our lights on and paying our staff. Um, so we're going to continue to do it, but also the vast majority of our readers who buy eBooks, buy them mm-hmm. from Amazon and to direct them elsewhere is to actively disserve them. And then to disserve ourselves um, is disserve even a word. I, this I, is I'll the, allow it. <laughs> Again, the, the grammar <laughs> gavel just went down. This that. is the Fridayest Thursday. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's interesting to, I wonder, you know, where Waterstones had that discussion too. Like, are we serving our customers by directing them to Kobo? Um, is that a concern or are there just enough commas on the check that it doesn't Yeah, matter? I mean, they, maybe they they don't get an affiliate fee. It's more of a marketing. Like, we're going to pay you mm-hmm. basically as a, this is an advertising move sure. for people to like know that Kobo exists and like to have exposure to what's going on there. Um, so it, it, I think that's that's interesting in the ongoing sorting out. I mean, the really only advantage sort of Apple or Google provides is that you can buy directly on the phone on Android. You can buy right from Google Play on iPhone. You can buy right out of iTunes without having to go through the the rigmarole of having to go to the store and then downloading in the app or something like that. Um, But Kobo doesn't have native device. I mean, they do have native device. They don't have phones. 
uh, you know, they don't have strong retail presences in which they can sell their own reading devices. Re- e- dedicated e-readers themselves are, you know, a dying, you know, they're they're a dying uh, um, market. It's kind of like Discman, you know, everyone it, mm-hmm. just or or actually, it's more like dedicated. It's like it's more like iPods. All it does is play MP3 players. And I'm very, you know, most of us have things that can do more than that now that we're going to be buying ebooks in any volume at all. Most people have smartphones. Um, but I, I, I think this merry-go-round is kind of a sign of the treading water of the ebook market right now. I mean, that's as much as anything as you can just switch Kobo and Amazon out and it kind of doesn't matter to Waterstones. Doesn't, I mean, it doesn't really mean anything different to their print sales or their overall business. They're just kind of looking for the most advantageous deal. And neither of them are an existential threat or changes their business considerably either way. And that's kind of like a feel where we are right now with print and ebooks. Like it's there. That's what it is. It's just kind of mm-hmm. there. Um, audiobooks, on the other hand, we'll get to that. I, I'm going to write a piece about audiobooks. I, I think, I think the, the thing that's going on with audiobooks is that it's, it was the sneaky disruptive thing that everyone thought ebooks were, but it's actually, it turned out to be audiobooks because they're, they're different. They're enough different mm-hmm. that they're different. Um, so I guess that's our show, huh? I think that is our show. Before we wrap up, we've got to remind folks through May 31st, you can get the VIP registration package to Book Riot Live. That's 40 for not 40 percent, 40 dollars off your weekend registration. You get a free water bottle and you get early RSVP access to special events, to any panels that will have limited seating, that sort of thing. Uh, All the goods Our Saturday night cocktail party at the Strand has sold Sold out. out. Sorry about that. You should have bought your tickets sooner. Uh, there will probably be some additional evening and uh, events planned for the uh, for the weekend, mm-hmm. but we don't know what those are. We would love to meet you guys. So again, bookriotlive.com, buy your tickets by May 31st to get $40 off your and get your free water bottle and get your RSVP access. All right. Uh, thanks so much for the show. You can email us podcast at uh, bookriot.com. You can find show notes for this and other episodes of Book Riot Podcast at bookriot.com slash listen. Thanks so much to our sponsors. We've got Smoke. What's the guy's name? Dan Violetta. And and then Warren Adler's um, uh, new – Fiona Fitzgerald series. The name of the book is Red Herring, the new one. Fiona Fitzgerald series. American Quartet is the first book. And the Red Herring is that one, uh, Fiona Fitzgerald series. More Adler. Thank you guys so much for sponsoring the show, making it possible. Thank you all so much for listening. We're hoping right now you'll probably be listening to this. You know, I, you won't be commuting to work in North America or in the U.S. on Monday. Hopefully, you're not going to work. Um, but this finds you reading something sunny and summery and getting ready for a great summer. We'll talk to you later. Have a good one. Mm-hmm.